Section 22 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 11 of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part 2, by Ida L. Pfeiffer. During my stay here I made an excursion to the grotto, said to be the scene of St. George's combat with the dragon. This grotto is situate to the right of the road, near the quarantine house. The ride thither offers many fine views, but the grotto itself is not worth seeing. Frequently in the evening I went to visit an Arab family, when I would sit upon the top of the tower and enjoy the sight of the beautiful sunset. A very strong military force was posted at Beirut, consisting entirely of Arnots. They had pitched their tents outside the town, which thus wore the appearance of a camp. Many of these towns do not contain barracks, and, as the soldiers are not here quartered in private houses, they are compelled to bivouac in the open field. The bazaar is very large and straggling. On one occasion I had the misfortune to lose myself among its numerous lanes, from which it took me some time to extricate myself. I had an opportunity of seeing many of the articles of merchandise, and an immense number of shops, but none which contained anything very remarkable. Once more I found how prone people are to exaggerate. I had been warned to abstain from walking in the streets, and above all to avoid venturing into the bazaar. I neglected both pieces of advice, and walked out once or twice every day during my stay, without once meeting with an adventure of any kind. I had already been at Beirut ten long, long days, and still no opportunity offered of getting to Alexandria. But at the end of June the worthy artist Sattler, whose acquaintance I had made at Constantinople, arrived here. He found me out, and proposed that I should travel to Damascus with Count Berchtold, a French gentleman by the name of de Rousseau, and himself, instead of wasting my time here. This proposition was a welcome one to me, for I ardently desired to be released from my fowls' nest. My arrangements were soon completed, for I took nothing with me except some linen and a mattress, which were packed on my horse's back. At one o'clock in the afternoon we were all assembled before the door of Monsieur Batista's inn, and an hour later we were in our saddles hastening toward the town gate. At first we rode through a deep sea of sand surrounding the town, but soon we reached the beautiful valley which lies stretched at the foot of the Antilibanus, and afterwards proceeded towards the range by pleasant paths, shaded by pine woods and mulberry plantations. But now the ascent of the magnificent Antilibanus becomes steeper and more dangerous as we advanced on rocky paths, often scarcely a foot in breadth, and frequently crossed by fissures and brooklets. Some time elapsed before I could quite subdue my fear, and could deliver myself wholly up to the delight of contemplating these grand scenes, so completely new to us Europeans, leaving my horse, which planted its feet firmly, and without once stumbling among the blocks of stone lying loosely on each other, to carry me as its instinct directed, for these horses are exceedingly careful, being well used to these dangerous roads. We could not help laughing heartily at our French companion, who could not screw up his courage sufficiently to remain on his horse at the very dangerous points. At first he always dismounted when we came to such a spot, but at length he grew weary of eternally mounting and dismounting, and conquered his fear, particularly when he observed that we depended so entirely on the sagacity of our steeds, and gave ourselves completely up to the contemplation of the mountains around us. 
It is impossible adequately to describe the incomparable forms of this mountain range. The giant rocks, piled one above the other, glow with the richest colors. Lovely green valleys lie scattered between, while numerous villages are seen, sometimes standing isolated on the rocks, and at others peering forth from among the deep shade of the olive and mulberry trees. The sun sinking into the sea-shot its last rays through the clear pure air towards the highest peaks of the mighty rocks. Everything united to form a picture which, when once seen, can never be forgotten. The tints of the rocky masses are peculiarly remarkable, exhibiting not only the primary colors, but many gradations, such as bluish-green, violet, etc. Many rocks were covered with a red coating resembling cinnabar. In several places we found small veins of pure sulfur, and each moment something new and wonderful met our gaze. The five hours which we occupied in riding from Beirut to the village of El Helmsen passed like five minutes. The Khan of El Helmsen was already occupied by a caravan bringing wares and fruit from Damascus, so that we had nothing for it but to raise our tent and encamp beneath it. July 2nd the rising sun found us prepared for departure, and soon we had reached an acclivity from whence we enjoyed a magnificent view. Before us rose the lofty peaks of Lebanon and Antilabanus, partly covered with snow, while behind us the mountains, rich in vineyards, olive plantations, and pine woods, stretched downward to the seashore. We had mounted to such a height that the clouds soaring above the sea and the town of Beirut lay far beneath us surrounding the city from our gaze. Vineyards are very common on these mountains. The vines do not, however, cling round trees for support, nor are they trained up poles as in Austria. They grow almost wild, the stem shooting upwards to a short distance from the ground, towards which the vine then bends. The wine made on these mountains is of excellent quality, rather sweet in flavor, of a golden yellow color, and exceedingly fiery. We continued to climb, without experiencing much inconvenience from the heat, up a fearful dizzy path, over rocks and stones, and past frightful chasms. Our leathern bottles were here useless to us, for we had no lack of water. From every crevice in the rocks a clear, crystal flood gushed forth, in which the gorgeously colored masses of stone were beautifully mirrored. After a very fatiguing ride of five hours, we at length reached the ridge of the Antilebanus where we found a khan, and allowed ourselves an hour's rest. The view from this point is very splendid. The two loftiest mountain ridges of Lebanon and Antilebanus enclose between them a valley, which may be about six miles long, and ten or twelve broad. On our way across the mountain's brow, and down into this picturesque valley, through which we journeyed for some miles to the village of Moshdelenshire, in the neighborhood of which place we pitched our tents. It is, of course, seldom that a European woman is seen in these regions, and thus I seem to be quite a spectacle to the inhabitants. At every place where we halted, many women and children would gather round me, busily feeling my dress, putting on my straw hat, and looking at me from all sides, while they endeavored to converse with me by signs. If they happen to have anything eatable at hand, such as cucumbers, fruits, or articles of that description, they never failed to offer them with the greatest good nature, and seemed highly rejoiced when I accepted some. 
On the present evening several of these people were assembled round me, and I had the opportunity of noticing the costume of this mountain tribe. Excepting the headdress, it is the same as that worn throughout all Palestine, and indeed in the whole of Syria. The women have blue gowns, and the men white blouses, wide trousers, and a sash. Sometimes the women wear spencers, and the more wealthy among them even display caftans and turbans. The headdress of the woman is very original, but does not look remarkably becoming. They wear on their foreheads a tin horn, more than a foot in length, and over this a white handkerchief, fastened at the back and hanging down in folds. This rule, however, only applies to the wealthier portion of the community, which is here limited enough. The poorer women wear a much smaller horn, over which they display an exceedingly dingy handkerchief. During working hours they ordinarily divest themselves of these ornaments, as they would render it impossible to carry loads on the head. The rich inhabitants of the mountains, both male and female, dress in the oriental fashion, but the women still retain the horn, which is then made of silver. The village of Maxdalenshire is built of clay huts thatched with straw. I saw many goats and horned cattle, and a good store of corn lay piled up before the doors. We were assured that the roads through the mountain inhabited by the Druzes and Maronites were very unsafe, and we were strongly urged to take an escort with us. But as we met caravans almost every hour, we considered this an unnecessary precaution, and arrived safely without adventure of any kind at Damascus. July 3rd. This morning we rode, at first, over a very good road, till at length we came upon a ravine, which seemed hardly to afford us room to pass. Closer and more closely yet did the rocky masses approach each other, as we passed amongst the loose shingle over the dry bed of a river. Frequently the space hardly admitted of our stepping aside to allow the caravans we met to pass us. Sometimes we thought, after having painfully labored through a ravine of this kind, that we should emerge into the open field, but each time it was only to enter a wilder and more deserted past. So we proceeded for some hours, till the rocky masses changed to heaps of sand, and every trace of vegetation disappeared. At length we climbed the last hill, and Damascus, the vaunted city of the east, lay before us. It is certainly a striking sight when, escaping from the inhospitable domains of the mountain and the sand hill, we see stretched at our feet a great and luxuriant valley, forming in the freshness of its vegetation a singular contrast to the desert region all around. In this valley, amid gardens and trees innumerable, extends the town, with its pretty mosques and slender lofty minarets. But I was far from finding the scene so charming that I could have exclaimed with other travellers, This is the most beauteous spot on earth. The plain in which Damascus lies runs at the foot of the Anti-Lebanus as far as the mountain of Sheikh, and is shut in on three sides by sand-hills of an incomparably dreary appearance. On the fourth side the plain loses itself in the sandy desert. This valley is exceedingly well watered by springs descending from all the mountains, which we could not, however, see on our approach, but no river exists here. The water rushes forth but to disappear beneath the sand, and displays its richness only in the town and its immediate neighborhood. From the hill whence we had obtained the first view of Damascus, we have still a good two miles to ride before we reach the plantations. These are large gardens of mishmish, walnut, pomegranate, orange, and lemon trees, 
fenced in with clay walls, traversed by long broad streets, and watered by bubbling brooks. For a long time we journeyed on in the shade of these fruitful woods, till at length we entered the town through a large gate. Our enthusiastic conceptions of this renowned city were more and more toned down as we continued to advance. The houses in Damascus are almost all built of earth and clay, and many ugly wooden gables and heavy window frames give a disagreeable, ponderous air to the whole. Damascus is divided into several parts by gates, which are closed soon after sunset. We passed through a number of these gates, and also through the greater portion of the bazaar, on our road to the Franciscan convent. We had this day accomplished a journey of more than twenty-four miles, in a temperature of thirty-five degrees to thirty-six degrees reamer, and had suffered much from the scorching wind, which came laden with particles of dust. Our faces were so browned that we might easily have been taken for descendants of the Bedouins. This was the only day that I felt my eyes affected by the glare. Although we were much fatigued on arriving at the convent, the first thing we did, after cleansing ourselves from dust and washing our burning eyes, was to hasten to the French and English consuls, so eager were we to see the interior of some of these clay huts. A low door brought us into a passage leading into a large yard. We could have fancied ourselves transported by magic to the scene of one of the fantastic Arabian nights, for all the glory of the East seemed spread before our delighted gaze. In the midst of the courtyard, which was paved with large stones, a large reservoir with a sparkling fountain spread a delightful coolness around. Orange and lemon trees dipped their golden fruit into the crystal flood, while at the sides flower-beds filled with fragrant roses, balsams, oleanders, etc., extended to the stairs leading to the reception-room. Everything seemed to have been done so that it could contribute to ornament this lofty and large apartment, which opened into the courtyard. Swelling divans, covered with the richest stuffs, lined the walls, which tastefully ornamented with mirrors and painted and sculptured arabesques, and further decked with mosaic and gilding, displayed a magnificence of which I could not have formed a conception. In the foreground of this fairy apartment, a jet of water shot upwards from a marble basin. The floor was also of marble, forming beautiful pictures in the most varied colors, and over the whole scene was spread that charm so peculiar to the Orientals, a charm combining the tasteful with the rich and gorgeous. The apartment in which the women dwell, and where they received their more confidential visitors, are of similar to the one I have just described, except that they are smaller, less richly furnished, and completely open in front. The remaining apartments also look into the courtyard. They are simply, but comfortably and prettily arranged. All the houses of the Orientals are similar to this one, except that the apartments of the women open into another courtyard than those of the men. After examining and admiring everything to our heart's content, we return to our hospitable convent. This evening the clerical gentlemen entertained us. A tolerably nice meal, with wine and good bread, restored our exhausted energies to a certain extent. At Beirut we were quite alarmed at the warnings we received concerning the numbers of certain creeping things we should find here in the bedsteads. I therefore betook myself to bed with many qualms and misgivings, but I slept undisturbed, both on this night and on the following one. End of section 22